Stuff Podcasts. Hello. As always, this episode contains conversations about sex and some swearing. It's also the last episode of the series, so you can start preparing yourselves emotionally for the goodbye. Some names have also been changed. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air. Aside from happily ever after, which we know now isn't real, we don't get that many happy endings. Endings are usually a bad thing. Like old age, those years that mark the final decades of our lives. Do we treat them like the precious gifts that they are? No, we treat them with dread and denial, plucking out our greys, injecting Botox. In Western society, at least, all the good stuff is in the first half of life. The rest is to be avoided for as long as possible. And relationships. Oh, the honeymoon period. All those butterflies and the endless all-night sex. That's the stuff that we put on a pedestal. Not the couple who've weathered every storm and stuck it out for decades. And still, for the most part, like each other. And when a marriage ends, we say it failed. But sometimes an ending is exactly what we needed to open our eyes to other options. Those are the kinds of endings we're going to hear about today. Endings which aren't endings after all. So many men just kind of go like, okay, I've had my orgasm. I'm going to roll over and stop now because that's the end point. Or where it turns out that life has saved the best for last. My cardiac specialist looked at my heart the last time and he said it was doing okay. And I said, well, maybe it's because I've got a toy boy. And where the thing that felt like an ending was actually a new beginning. Mentally, I think I was already out. I was already fantasising about life on my own. I'm Melody Thomas, and this is the final episode for season one of The Good Sex Project. Happy endings. know about you, but I love hearing old people talk about the great sex they're having. So often, sex and pleasure are experiences that we only allow the young. If our parents mention it, oh, shut up, mum, heaven forbid our grandparents do. We only want to hear about sex from young, hot people. But the reason I love to hear it is because it gives me hope that one day I'll get to be a horny grandma too. With the help of the blue pills... Anything's possible now, I mean... uh... Let me introduce our first guest, Janet. (laughs) I'm 76, heading for 80. (laughs) Not far away. Janet's a friend of a friend, and she lives in a cute little flat on Auckland's North Shore. Though on the weekends, she travels to the Bay of Plenty with her boyfriend, John, who she calls her toy boy because he's only 70. These two have been together for about nine years. We were introduced to one another um, and we met and arranged to meet each other at the Hamilton Gardens. So that was where I, I fell upon him. <laughs> not literally? Not in, the, not in the bushes, <laughs> no. <laughs> By this time, Janet had been married twice already. She was born in Palmerston North in 1945 the year that World War II ended and the microwave was invented. 
Janet was the youngest of five kids, and as a teenager, she was sent to boarding school in the Hawke's Bay because she got bronchitis every winter, and doctors thought it would help. And it was a good education, except when it came to the birds and the bees. Or the birds and the bulls? I was a farmer's daughter. It was never talked about because it was just always there, in front of you sort of thing. The ball went out or, or the rim, you know, this, the whole cycle. When she was 19, Janet married a farmer and moved to the king country. This was five years after the pill first became available to New Zealand women, though only married women. My mum said to me, the only advice she would give me was to take contraception. In those days, it was one pill fits all sort of thing, unfortunately. And now they have mild, different, you know, um, but it didn't agree with me. I retained my fluid in my legs. By the time she reached her mid-20s, Janet had three kids under five. Janet tells a story that really highlights how few choices women had at the time when it came to contraception. She was working at a freezing works doing wages when a Catholic woman she knew came in, one who was a bit older with grown-up children. And she looked dreadful and I said, what's wrong? And she looked and she just did this deep pain face and she said, I'm pregnant. It's like the worst thing could ever she didn't want the child, but because her husband was so staunch, he wouldn't let her do anything about it. Um, in the end, they divorced. But it's, it does it has caused humongous problems in the, in the past, you know. So when it came time for Janet and her husband to stop having children... Uh, the children's father had the snip. It certainly having um, a vasectomy was the best thing that ever happened to me. I asked Janet if her first marriage was a happy one, and she said it was to a point. But then the details she shared? I don't know. I mean, the definition of a happy marriage has changed. Probably back then, happy enough was the goal. And it sounds like Janet was happy enough to look past certain things. My husband was an alcoholic and he didn't, he wasn't happy. You know, he'd look at me and say, you're so fat, no man would fancy you. And then when I lost weight, it was like, he didn't want me anyway. It's pretty horrible stuff. But the straw that broke the camel's back was this. He started playing around with, with other women. I, I just about put me in the ground just trying to fix it. I had this fix-it thing, I'd fix it for everybody. But it couldn't be fixed. When she discovered her husband was having an affair with a neighbour, Janet decided it was time to go. One day I got up in the clothes I stood up in and I just drove away. Beautiful home. I actually haven't got anything to show you. No, I haven't. And I went over to the lake, and Taupo was about, I don't know, an hour away. I went to the real estate people and, and got a house to rent but down by the lake and I just healed myself, just spent a couple of months just existing by the water. And the water's got wonderful 
healing qualities. Eventually, Janet was well enough to get a job. She started out as a cleaning lady and then applied to be a share broker. When I got to work in the morning, the gold price, the silver price, the oil barrels, what the Dow Jones closed at was all laid out on my, on my desk. And I was spending huge quantities of my clients' money having to buy and sell people's shares. So I'd gone from no responsibility to terribly big responsibility investing money. Janet's confidence was picking up. And around this time, she also filed for a divorce, which isn't an easy thing to do now, but it was even harder back then. In those days, you had to get a psychologist report to get a divorce. Not always, but yeah, some of the time. It took Janet six years of court proceedings to get her divorce, and her ex made it as difficult as possible. Thankfully, in the end, the judge assessed all the evidence and came down firmly on her side. He looked over his glasses at me and he said, I can assure you, we'll have her divorce. So you got your divorce? Oh, Yes, he wasn't pleased at all. That's her ex who wasn't pleased. Jenna and I chatted for about an hour over homemade biscuits and cups of tea, but we didn't get into a whole lot of detail about her second marriage, which was to another farmer, aside from her mentioning that it was a bit of a drought when it came to sex. Because the reason I went to see her, aside from just the delight of hanging out and good biscuits, was that I wanted to hear about her sex life now and how different it is from her early experiences, which she describes as... Awful. Well, awful. I shouldn't say awful. Just, yeah, it was, it was a, a real chauvinistic sort of a, a, approach. Men in those days didn't worry about satisfying the woman side of it. As long as they ejaculated, that seemed to be all that mattered. Earlier in the series, Emily Nagoski told us that it's never too late to start embracing pleasure, and Janet's an awesome example of this. But it's also worth mentioning she did already know about sexual pleasure before she met John. She bought her first vibrator in the early 1980s. I'd love to see what that looked like. And that was towards the end of her first marriage. But with John, from her late 60s onwards, she finally got to explore pleasure alongside another person. <laughs> we know, we laugh. We got a terrible sense of humour, both of us, and, and, and we, we, we just laugh most of the time. I think that's, that's sort of the best part of all. Because often when you get getting on for 80, there's not a lot to be so funny about. Look at yourself in the mirror, you don't like what you see. Everything becomes more of an effort to, you know, it just in everyday little things. And both of us are touchy-feely people, so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot, lot of hugging and things go, go on. And not just hugging. My cardiac specialist looked at my heart the last time and he said it was doing okay. And I said, oh, maybe it's because I've got a, got a, a toy boy. And he goes, oh, the things you patients tell me. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I was talking to the girl that cuts my hair and she said, 
The funny part about it is that his mum and dad were both Methodist ministers. <laughs> so you shocked the pants off him. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. I love that you're going around speaking about that stuff. So yeah. you, in terms of discovering sexual pleasure with a partner, that came in your late 60s for yes. the first time. Yes, it did. And quite sad, really, I think, that it's the wrong end of the, the link. But never mind, I mean... At least you I'd got be, there. you got to be grateful. I mean, some people never get that. Enjoying sexual intimacy at this stage in life does come with its own challenges. But where there's a will, there's a way. He's uh, a bad diabetic and he's just reached 70 and his equipment's not working like it ought to, uh, or used to, put it that way. But with the, the help of the blue pills, anything's possible now. I mean, uh, he just says, uh, you know, we'll, we'll read for 20 minutes or whatever, and, and uh, with this one slowing down, doesn't worry me at all. I've not got to that I-can't-be-bothered stage or soon to have a cup of tea or I mean, I hear all sorts of people say all sorts of things and it's like, not like that for us. And in terms of your experience of orgasm, is that a thing that has gotten better, has... Absolutely. But (laughs) there's a secret to that as well and I don't know that I should be telling you or not, but I have what I call a hooch sandwich at night time. What's that? Well, it's marijuana in an ice cream. In case you missed it, she said a hooch sandwich, which is an ice cream sandwich made with weed ice cream. My boy said, I'll get you some oil, Mum. So he goes online and get, I guess he gets it from Australia. So he, um, and he goes, yeah, I've got a, now I've got a druggie for a Mum. Like, <laughs> So cannabis, marijuana consumption helps with what sensation? Oh, no, sleeping, you have a wonderful sleep, but when you wake up in the morning, you feel really sexy and you feel all relaxed. And you have the most amazing orgasms. Mm, You do. What would you say are the main differences between, you know, if you looked back on your 10, 20 years ago, your your experiences when it came to sexuality, what are the main differences? About then and now? Well, then I was getting none and now I'm getting more. <laughs> but it's not just the amount. Yes, I was just going to say I'm, I'm not into, uh, I'm certainly not into the, Quantity, <laughs> the quality, very important. <laughs> Maybe this isn't stuff that you can talk to your own grandma about, which is understandable, but I don't know. It's also a shame because grandmas know so much. Just imagine what amazing advice we're missing out on. Well, Janet does have some. Yes, the best thing they can do is spend some time with themselves. And discover their own sexuality and what pleases... I mean, to go into any sort of relationship, 
you need to know what what you want out of it, and if you want the you know your partner to be onto it, sort of thing. I mean, you you've got to say, and you've got to say it in plain language so they understand. It's really really important that you say it out loud what you want. There you go. Put what you want into plain language, say it out loud, get into bed for some snuggles, see where that leads you. Thank you so much, Janet. Anyone who especially loved that interview, I'm just going to recommend the movie Good Luck to You, Leo Grand with Emma Thompson. It's about an older woman, Thompson, who employs a wonderful sex worker to help her confront some internalised sex negativity and access pleasure, and it's so good. In this episode, we're hearing about happy endings that you might not find in the movies, and Janet's is definitely one of those. In fact, her ending wasn't really an ending after all. While a lot of us would have presumed her sex life was winding up in her late 60s, it was actually just kicking off. The good bits, anyway. And there are other areas where we assume things are over, when really, they're just changing. In that first month of us, you know, like, negotiating our relationship, you got to say to me, you can find another partner who can keep it up if you want. This is Kate. Oh, 100%. And this is Sam. We recorded this interview over Zoom, so you'll have to excuse the tinny audio. If you needed someone to go, wham, damn, you know, I am happy for you to get that from somebody else. Sam and Kate are in their mid-40s. They're both hetero, and their relationship is a polyamorous one. I have another long-distance partner. Shut up. Yes, I do. And I see her once a year. So, and she is now married to somebody in another long-distance partnership. We're all glasses of punishment. And they've navigated more endings that aren't endings than most people, which is why they're joining us now. Let's start at the beginning, or their beginning. We got together about five years ago um, in Auckland, and then he got a job in America. And we, I like to say, we, we failed to break up, and we started having a long-distance relationship, thank God for instant messaging, and video chat. Like, 20 years ago, I don't think this relationship would have lasted the distance at all. Emails and letters just don't have the same immediacy. Anyone who's been in a long-distance relationship knows how hard they can be. And part of what makes them so hard is the never-ending, ending-but-not-ending nature of them. You and this other person are in love. You talk all the time. But your bodies are in a constant state of missing. Your other half is both there and not there. But for a couple of years, Sam and Kate made it work by using the internet and making sure they caught up in person three or four times a year. Then COVID hit. It obviously put a massive break on being able to see each other. And when the borders first opened, um, he was lucky enough to get a um, quarantine spot, came over for an extended stay. And then there was two years that we didn't get to see each other. And about a year into that, it became very emotionally painful and we had to reevaluate what our relationship was and effectively transition from being partners to being very good friends. So we did a very kind of careful breaking up but not breaking up process. Breaking up but not breaking up. 
ending, not ending. Classic Sam and Kate. But the romantic and sexual side of the relationship at this point was pretty much wrapped up. They agreed that was for the best. Then Sam came back to Aotearoa for work and oopsie-daisy. Yep, we made an absolute, full well-knowing, silly decision that we knew was going to hurt, which was that we got back together again for my six weeks back in New Zealand. That's right, on again. But just for this trip, so they say. But we went into it knowing it was a silly decision, and at least in my mind, I went, I'm an adult, I can make silly decisions now. I do not know what we are, but we are not together, but we are back together, but we are not together, and we do not know. These two are really attracted to each other, which is probably a big part of why their plan to stay just friends failed. And you too, listener, beware of this. I had a just friend once, and now we're married. The warm, fuzzy period never stopped. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I'm sorry, you're supposed to be ordinary now. Why do I still, like, really, really kind of hanging out to see you? And we had multiple times, didn't we, where we... um, basically went, the warm fuzzy period hasn't stopped, has it? And this is one thing that long distance can give couples if it works. The distance keeps things feeling exciting and fresh for longer. You get to go through missing them and then the joy of the reunion over and over. But it's not all roses. There's a whole body of research on, on people who have this constant goodbye, hello, goodbye, hello. And the biggest stressor on the relationship is actually that saying goodbye constantly. I know why you won't move back, and I understand it, but I also, it is, it's sad. Part of me wants to demand, like, just fuck it, stop looking after yourself, come back and be with me. When I'm 60, I'll be ready to return, you'll be ready for me, we'll just retire together. We'll just live happily ever after. And I'm going to find somebody else by then. Opportunity on. (laughs) (laughs) When Sam and Kate first introduced themselves earlier in the episode, we heard them hinting at some things that they'd navigated when it came to sex. Sex in this relationship. Let's get into that now. We are very sexually compatible. We um, give each other a lot of a lot of pleasure. Um, I think I have a five to one orgasm relationship. I get five to every one of hers. So I'm I'm happy. I'm really happy. Sam and Kate are one of those rare, straight couples who don't follow a script. Their sex is more like the meandering queer sex that we've heard about earlier in the series. And it's also not enslaved to male pleasure or the male orgasm. I can imagine that some listeners might be like 10 to 1, like, excuse me. For me, a large portion of my pleasure is giving it. That's what I actually really enjoy. So, yeah, we can have sex five days in a row and I won't ever orgasm. And yet, I loved it so much. It's not that Sam doesn't like to orgasm. No, no, it is very nice to orgasm. I don't know if anyone else has tried it, but I have. It's it's quite nice. Um, It's just that sometimes things get in the way. The uh, ADHD can be a royal pain. As well as ADHD, Sam is autistic. But for him, it's the ADHD that really gets in the way of things sometimes. If you have ADHD or you think you might have ADHD and you're having trouble in the bedroom, you're just not able to get there or you keep thinking of something else and you lose it, that's totally normal. That is 100% normal. You know, you're you're going at it, um, having fun, and then you hear something or something springs to mind and you're like, no, no, don't think about that. If I keep thinking about that, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose the erection. No, no, just focus. Stop thinking about that. 
just want to say that this isn't an inevitability for people with ADHD. It's just what happens for Sam. And a lot of people who don't have ADHD will relate to getting all caught up in their heads and then losing their erection or their orgasm as a result. And of course, it's a spiraling thing. It's, it's self-fulfilling at that point. And there's the embarrassment um, and the, I'm really sorry. And then there's the anger that, you know, you're having that. And then the depression that you've got that, you know, with uh, my partner here, she was initially was like, it's okay, it's okay. But I don't believe that because that's the thing you say. You say it's okay, but I don't believe that it's okay. But then you start to believe that, okay, maybe it is okay. Well, now it's at the point where it's not only is it okay, but we can just ride with it or even make fun of it. Erectile dysfunction, or ED, causes so much shame, despite the fact that it's really common. Most people with penises will experience it at some point in their lives. Oh, 100%. I've even tried having a conversation with some friends about that at my age. And I don't know, maybe they've got no problem with it and they can keep it hard forever, I don't know. But they appear to be very much stuck in the edge of, what are you talking about? i got no problem. My penis works perfectly fine. Yet I know that in 10 years, at worst in 20 years, that we could be sitting at the bar going, fuck, I just can't get it up sometimes. And know full well that none of your freaking 65-year-old friends are going to be able to say, oh, I've got no problem. The best they'll say is, now listen, I'm taking sales and it's fucking amazing. (laughs) But you're going to be like, let me tell you. Yeah. Let's just say he was ahead of the game. I had ED before it was cool. Because so many of us think about sex in terms of penis and vagina and of male sexuality as the super virile, super hard stallion, we view a soft penis as the end of sex. But it doesn't have to be. If you don't believe me, then okay, I'm going to bring in some real sex experts. First up, Sonia Waters. She's the somatic sexologist based in Wanaka who we've met throughout the series, including in a really great bonus episode, which you should go listen to if you haven't yet. Dudes don't have to be hard for that whole time. Soft cocks do great jobs too. (laughs) The soft cock plays just as well and has just as much sensation as the hard cock. Hello, Stephen. How are you? What amazing timing. Isn't that true, darling? Yeah, in case uh, you missed that, that was us being interrupted by Sonia's partner just when she was praising soft cocks. But as well as Sonia, there's also Emily Nagoski. She's the American sex educator who wrote Come As You Are and who used the lack of an erection in her description of perfect sex. I'm going to replay a little of her talking about normal sex, which we've already heard, to lead into the new stuff that we haven't yet. Normal sex is where people are engaging erotically with each other, And everyone involved is glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences, including no unwanted emotional consequences. Perfect sex is when you have that plus everyone is turning toward whatever's happening in this moment with playful, confident joy. 
So if, for example, a person with a penis would like to get an erection and an erection is not happening, you turn toward the absence of the erection and all the feelings anybody might have about that absence of erection with playful confidence and joy. Once I interviewed a friend about his experience with premature ejaculation. You can't see me, but I just put premature in air quotes because what counts as premature varies from person to person. Anyway, all through his late teens and 20s, my friend was struggling with this. And when it happened to him, he'd roll over and turn his back on his partner and disappear inside himself. He was just so ashamed. And that's the temptation with ED as well. But dissolving into shame and shutting out your partner isn't actually your only option. The more you communicate openly about it, the more you say outright, you know, hey, my dick goes soft sometimes. And that's got nothing to it how much I love you, babe. You are gorgeous and you turn me on heaps, but it just goes soft. And that's part of how I am. Now, good luck saying that because I remember being 20 and that's a hell of a conversation. But I, if you can do it, if you can have that conversation and your partner can process that conversation, then awesome. Because guess what? Your partner is probably spiralling too. As a woman, you go like, what the fuck do I do? Like, in the sense of you don't know where they're at with that. So you don't know, like, do I reassure? Do I just politely ignore this so we both kind of roll over and pretend that nothing's happening? Or do I kind of like go, it's okay, it's okay, I really don't care. Like, you know, and do I do I touch it? Are they still aroused? Do I internalise this that I'm not attractive, that I wasn't doing sex, right? It all comes back to the same thing every time. Communication. Talking to each other. And understanding that it's just sex. It's not the end of the world when things don't go according to plan. As Emily Nagoski said, it's about turning towards that moment with playful confidence and joy. You love what's happening right now in the moment, including loving the penis that isn't behaving the way somebody might wish it were. There's so much fun you can have with a soft penis, by the way. Or, like, suppose you've been stimulating yourself for a while and you want to have an orgasm and orgasm isn't happening. Perfect sex is when you turn toward all the pleasure you've been experiencing in your movement toward orgasm with playful confidence and joy. You love what's true, regardless of whether or not orgasm happens. That's perfect sex. Let's go back to Sam and Kate one more time. If you can be confident in yourself and you can be confident in your partner, then it doesn't matter how bad sex goes in a kind of you know like weird stuff happens way. It it's sort of just you still you you just kind of travel through it. I think the best sex involves laughter, and you go, "Oh my god, that bed squeaking has just ruined it for both of us," and you can laugh about it. Well, the sex may not have been the best sex we've had, but it ain't bad sex at that point. We just had a really funny moment. We happened to be naked and touching each other at the time. And if your partner isn't someone that you can do that with, if their reaction is more likely to add to your sense of shame and isolation, maybe they're not someone you should be sleeping with. At this point, sort of in my life, I've turned, I've now turned around and gone, you know, I'll fuck it. If my prospective or new partner, you know, gets upset, makes a pun of me or whatever, for what's going on in my body, I'm too old to have to put up with that and I'm too old to be ashamed. 
It's time for us to leave Sam and Kate, but before we do, I'd like to see if we can get some clarity around the relationship stuff. A friend of mine likes to say, you know, he doesn't believe in breaking up anymore. You just keep on changing the nature of your relationship. And so that's what we're doing. I don't know if it was the Greeks who had like seven forms of love. It was the ancient Greeks. And as well as eros, which is romantic love, there's also pragma, committed love, philousia, self-love, and philia, which is authentic, intimate, friendship kind of love. And there's more, but it sounds like Sam and Kate flow between different types of love. I've got um, a best friend, and she is amazing. And if we did eventually fall out of love, it would still be that strong friendship love. It would still be there. A non-ending that suits their story perfectly. Thank you so much, you two. Beautiful stuff. Oh no, you know what this means? We've reached our last story for the season. I'm not ready. Though, if we're going to finish with anyone, I'm glad it's this next babe. That's after the break. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo of that gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that, I think Chris, that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing if in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. If you really want to know what your issues are, start dating because you are never going to feel more insecure and more vulnerable again and again and again and again. Rinse and repeat. This is Hannah Davison. She's a great talker, which is probably why she's got her own podcast. It's called Untidy and she presents it alongside Matilda Green. It's kind of a parenting podcast, but mostly just about being human and doing your best. Hannah is an incredibly clever writer and the co-founder of My Big Moments, who publish personalised children's books. What else? She lives in Ototahi. Oh, actually, here's her Tinder bio. Mover, shaker, sardo baker. Seeker of silver linings, prefers experiences over stuff. Lover of nature, writer of books and mother of two. I'm looking for an adventurous spirit, a curious mind, a warm heart and a hearty laugh. Someone emotionally mature with a juvenile sense of humour. Extra points for feeling happy in your own skin, appreciating ambiance and being able to fold a fitted sheet. Let's play compatibility bingo. (laughs) First of all, no one can fold a fitted sheet. Yeah, no. If I'm really honest... I just sort of roll mine up like a burrito and shove it in. But if someone else wants to Marie Kondo my linen cupboard, I'm okay with it. (laughs) Hannah's here to talk about an ending that was a big one, splitting up from her husband, the father of her children, in her late 30s. But later she's going to tell us about how that ending was also a new beginning for her. 
First, let's rewind to how Hannah and the father of her children first met, because it's very Elizabeth meets Mr Darcy. I was invited to a dress-up party, quite a good theme, go as your alter ego. And so I went along there, and then my friend who was hosting the party grabbed me by the arm, and she said, now come and meet my brother, who I secretly want you to marry. And she drags me over, and there he is, dressed as Shane Warne, which wasn't a great start. (laughs) He had a flip phone in his top pocket, a blonde mullet, and then we get introduced, and the flip phone goes off, and he opens it, flips it open, answers it and walks away. And I thought, what a dick. <laughs> I love how the flip phone wasn't a prop, it was his actual phone. Anyway, a few weeks later, her friend gets in touch again and says, I'm throwing a party for my brothers going away and you should come. I said, look, quite honestly, I thought your brother was a bit of a dick. I don't think I'm going to come. And she's like, no, no, you must. You know, you've got lots of friends there that'd love to see you. And I was like, fine, okay, I come. Anyway, this time, he is the life and soul of the party. He's the perfect host. He can talk to everybody. Your drinks are topped up. You've got some food, laughing. We go out and have a massive night. And I lose a shoe. Um, like, it, 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 it all happened. A true Cinderella the story. A true Cinderella <laughs> story. Apart from it was my flatmate's shoe, it was super awkward. So to make a long story short, they hit it off. Hannah was living in the UK at this time, and Mr Darcy had been visiting from New Zealand, but he didn't go home after that party. He stayed so they could hang out longer. You know, we had a great time. We had a really, really fun time. It was very easy to fall in love. It was very whirlwind. So 14 months after we met, we were engaged. 13 months after that, we were married. And then four months after that... I discovered I was pregnant with our first child. Hannah's Mr Darcy was a farmer, and life on the farm is tough at the best of times. We were married for about eight years. I think we were together for maybe 11 years or something like that. We went through basically every six months some sort of enormous crises. It was just... A relationship crisis or like the farm? No, like the farm. Things just kept coming. The, t- the waves just kept crashing in one after the other. And meanwhile, you've got small babies and you've got a farm to run. There's no time and, and it's just like constant, constant. Two minutes after midnight on November 14th, 2016, the Kaikoura earthquake struck. If you're from Aotearoa, you'll know about this already, but if not, it was big. It was a magnitude 7.8, and it was shallow, about 15 kilometres deep. Hannah and her husband's farm was about 10 kilometres from the earthquake's epicentre in Colferdon. That's where we were, and we lost our house, and we were out in the middle of the night with the kids over our shoulders, you know, going into the brave new world with not even a pair of undies on, basically. Then we had, like, three years of fighting the insurance company, and then towards the end of that, we got mycoplasma bovis, and we lost the entire herd. It was just like one thing after another. This is his family farm. This is his home. It's the, you know, the only one he's ever known where the family has been for generations. And like, this is this thing is breaking me. You know, like it, it doesn't care about us. Through all of this, Hannah and her husband had been so busy weathering the blows, dealing to the immediate threats to the well-being of themselves and their kids, that their relationship had totally fallen on the back burner. And it's so easy for that focus of, of your relationship, and the two people are, are the core of the relationship, but to let it come last. Because you assume it's going to be okay, and then the next thing you know, there's an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, and it's too late. 
So what were the signs that that was, when did you start kind of awaking to the fact that the relationship had been left behind through all of that? Mm. It's so hard to say because I think these things accumulate, you know, and and it was, with us, it it was not one thing. We were just doing our own thing. We were apart from one another a lot because, you know, dairy farm, like it's just relentless. Um, and kids, relentless. And work and other demands, relentless. And, you know, he'd come home in the evening. Um, he was knackered, um, would often go into his shell and would want to switch off. And meanwhile, that was that time when actually we really needed to connect. I just needed just any kind of conversation, you know. And he'd come in and go, how was your day? And he'd be like, oh, just getting it done. I'm like, what? I'm I'm not really asking you. What I'm asking you is to connect with me. That's what I'm asking you. And I'd just, you know, I'd just carry on and get it done because it's got to get done. And you get sick of asking, can you please bath the kids or asking for permission so you can have some time? Can I please go for a walk? I remember, like, um, talking to the therapist and he's like, you know, what would it have meant to you if he'd walked in the door and just said, where do you need me? And I think I just burst into tears. It's like, oh my God, I just can't even imagine what that would be like. You just can't let someone, like, take that much load. And also I think, like, when when you get into that space, there can often be not very much touch. And so if there's not much touch, when there is touch, then you're like, oh, you just want sex. Like, this is just someone else wanting something more out of me. I've given all day. Don't ask. I can't give any more at this point. You know, there was a, a rift that began and then widened and widened and then someone would try and, like, you know, put themselves out there into that chasm being like, hey, I'm out here, come here with me and join me. And the other person couldn't meet them. And, you know, eventually you get to the point you just go, I can't be this lonely anymore. There'll be a lot of people listening who are feeling very seen right now. This kind of experience is really common. The gulf, the resentment, the diminishing touch and communication – This is a pathway that a lot of people tread on their way to splitting up. But a lot of people don't split. Some of them just accept that this is their lot. But others knuckle down, go to a good therapist, and do a shitload of work to get through to a place of connection again. And I think one of the hardest parts of being in a romantic relationship when you're struggling is trying to figure out which path you're meant to take. I've mentioned this a few times in the series. How do you know when it's the hard stuff that you're meant to work through or when it's time to quit? Hannah knew. My body told me I was getting sick. I had adrenal fatigue. I had shingles. My hair fell out. Extraordinary chronic stress. But my body just couldn't bear being touched by him anymore. And, you know, I'd be getting changed in the bedroom and he'd walk past me and every cell in my body was going, please don't touch me. And I couldn't bear it. Mm. And I just, there was nothing I could do. I remember just like, not a religious person, but just like praying, like, please let me love my husband again. Please let me love my husband again. I didn't want to have to go through it. You know, I was just hoping for any other alternative than to have to do that really, really hard thing. You know, I didn't know 
how that was going to impact the children. I was terribly worried about hurting them. Mm. Would I be okay? How would I be treated? You know, what what was life going to be like? Because sure as shit didn't fit the five-year plan. Finally, Hannah found her voice and asked for a separation. That moment and the days after, I have to say, still I find it really haunting because as much as you know it's something you have to do, you still care about this person and you don't want to harm them. And to see a choice that you have to make causing harm is awful. Mm. It really, really hurts, yeah. This was in March 2020. If you're listening and you're in New Zealand, you might have an idea about what happens next. Then we got locked down together. (laughs) Yep, Hannah asked for a separation and then they went into lockdown through a pandemic. So no one could actually leave. Which was like breakup boot camp. Because in any ordinary situation, that's when you can run away from each other and avoid one another and you get to go into your narrative where you're right and they're wrong, full stop. But there was nowhere to run to. They had to face each other. In the end, we probably skipped two years of resentment because we were forced to have all the conversations that hadn't been had. We also worked with a therapist over Zoom, the same therapist, but we did it individually. So we'd go away and we'd have those sessions and then we'd come back and we'd have conversations. And he felt blindsided by the separation. Like, why? I don't understand. Like, there must be, there must be someone else, you know, there must, what's going on? And that therapist kind of like dismantled us and then put us back together. And it meant that we had to really be accountable for the ways that we had contributed to the breakdown of the relationship. And, and take ownership of it. And so we had this amazing breakup experience because of the conversations that we got to have, because we managed to find resolution with those grievances and we got to air them. And the other person sat across from us and heard us finally and saw us finally, listened and took it on board and responded in a way that was actually constructive. Mm-hmm. It was tough but it was also just brutally beautiful. Here's what Hannah remembers most about this brutally beautiful period. And it's not the stuff you might think. You can't be in conflict all the time. And especially not when you're locked down. So, like, there were times when, like, do you want to just watch Game of Thrones? You know, so we'd watch TV together. And then we also started playing online Scrabble together. So we had this thing that we could kind of have some friendly banter over. And we still did kind things for one another. Like we had a big like bathtub on the hill. He went up and he lit the fire under the bathtub, hauled water up there and made me a bath on the hill because I was just so fucking stressed. So I could get away because also I was trying to hold things together because, you know, he was really in crisis and and I'm trying to hold things together for the kids um and so I didn't really get to let go and you know do that ugly cry on the bathroom floor thing that you actually need to do and so when I drove up to go to the bathtub I was in my car and I just had all the stuff that just had to come out and I just went for it and I screamed and I cried and I yelled voiced all of the things that I was really really afraid of 
If you've been following along the whole series, you might remember something that Dan Savage told us about how the difference between time to call it quits and time to keep trying is when you're both still taking care of each other. And it sounds like this is what Hannah's husband was trying to do by lighting that fire under the bath for her. It's just that it happened too late. Mentally, I think I was already out. I was already fantasising about life on my own. And, and being out and being away from it, I just had really, I couldn't do anymore. So now, where are you at? Two and a, two and a bit years, two and a half years? Yeah. Two, down the track. Yeah. The, the healing and the relationship has taken a long time, but we always knew we wanted to do what was best for the kids and we wanted to have a good relationship. but they have been separated for a while now and things between them are really good. There are hiccups, of course, but they've figured out how to co-parent and they're slowly figuring out how to be friends. It's not breakups that damage children. And I can say this because I know that, th- that this is true. Um, not because I'm a child expert, but child experts have told me. It is hostility between parents that damages children. It's being caught in the middle. And we didn't want that. The story of Hannah and her first husband kind of does have an ending. Well, their marriage does at least. But their relationship continues on, differently. And for both of them, the end of their marriage was the beginning of a whole lot of new things. Their journey into co-parenting, into learning to find their feet on their own again, and stepping into the world of dating. Dating at any age is a roller coaster. When you meet your first husband in the time before Tinder and you've never swiped in your life, dating post-divorce is a steep learning curve. I would say generally the bar is quite low on Tinder. You do have to kind of like just stumble through the undergrowth of this like Tinderscape wasteland. Every now and again you trip over something really good. But it's amazing, like there you're often lucky to find a guy with a bio. To illustrate how low the bar is, one guy's bio was, I'm tall and I have a job. I left it a number of months, mostly out of respect. Like I was desperate for some touch. Like, you know, my greatest sexual partner had been the showerhead basically, which was a very generous lover, I'm not gonna say, but it wasn't really the connection that I was seeking. There's been ups and downs. There was one particularly bad pashing session behind a public toilet block. But Hannah's not too proud to admit that some of the time she was also part of the problem. I mean, initially, I'm not going to lie, the red flags thing, I was running towards them like they were fucking party bunting. You know, like I could have knitted myself an evening dress. What were they? What were they? What were the sexy red flags? Emotionally unavailable men. I'm sure if I just try hard enough, you'll fancy me. I don't want to limit it to just emotionally unavailable men. I will take any kind of unavailability. <laughs> that is like cracked. Like really hard to lock a place in, not to meet. Like oh, physical yeah, unavailability. Yeah, yeah. Like make me work hard. You come running towards me. I cannot get out of there fast enough. Mm. I've changed. Mostly. Anyway, it's wonderful to have awareness of it. <laughs> Overall, getting back into dating and hooking up at this age has been a huge revelation for Hannah. It's kind of like a sexual reawakening, which is so much better than the sexual awakening because this time you can do it with like research and understanding and feeling better about yourself and feeling more confident and in your body and all of that stuff. 
And so suddenly you're like, I can explore whatever I want, whoever I want, so long as they match with me, and kind of use that as a training ground for what I want, what do I like, who do I like, what do I want to do with it, how do I want to communicate. You get it wrong, it doesn't matter. It's fine. That person can't cope with with how much you want to communicate or what you want to say. Great. Off they go. You're only limited by your own creativity and what you're willing to try. As long as everyone's like consenting and having a good time and can, you know, advocate for themselves in any situation and can communicate their way through it. Cool. Go for it. Um, And other people's interests also awaken you to things that you hadn't considered. This reminds me a lot of Saren's story in episode four when she was talking about the trial and error of casual sex and the importance of verbal communication, plus how that got easier as she got older. And it also reminded me of what the Australian feminist and author Clementine Ford said about how sex is meant to be play. Hannah takes the play analogy even further. I think good sex is looking at sex like it's a grown-up sandpit, you know? You can bring your own toys, (laughs) you can share each other's toys, you can build things, you can make things, you can make a mess. You know, like, don't take it too seriously. That's our space to play and be creative and enjoy ourselves and connect. You can invite other people in. I don't know, whatever you're into. (laughs) And I think, like, if you're in a long-term relationship and you're having a dry spell and it gets longer and longer, like, it gets harder and harder to get back into the sandpit. Like, just keep, just, I don't know, keep a bit of sand in your shoes. <laughs> Clementine Fort talked about the many, many messages she gets from women who are desperate for her advice on how to make their partnerships more equal so they can stay in them. Clem's advice is pretty much always the same now. Leave. In some cases, Hannah would agree with that. You go through these questions like, "Is this? Do I just accept this? That like, your sex life dies, and that you just are sexless for the, the rest of your days? Is that is this just what marriage is? Am I expecting too much? Am I wanting too much? Do I have a right to feel that I want more than this? You go through all these questions. You go on every single side street that there is on the journey. <laughs> I bet, and we. I feel like a lot of what we see of marriage and TV movies is that is like kind of sexless or bickering or like he does nothing and she does yeah. everything. Well, what's and the one marker of, of a successful marriage that we have? Longevity. Yeah, well, what if they're fucking miserable for 60 years? And I think in the end, what gave me permission was that, you know, I thought about the children. I thought, well, what's this going to do the children? And then I thought, well, hang on. If I see my children in a relationship that's making them sick and miserable, what would I want for them? I'd want for them to be able to make a hard decision that needed to be made. This advice isn't for everyone. If your relationship's struggling, but you think there's enough good in its foundations and enough willingness to show up and change from both parties, there's a really good chance you can work through the tough part to the good stuff on the other side. Though you might need some help to do that. But if you know it in your bones, like Hannah did, that it's time to call it, that's okay. I've never looked back on that decision and thought I've made the wrong choice. Mm. No, I knew 100%. I mean, it's not a decision you rush into. 
So two days ago, he invited me for coffee to meet his new girlfriend. And we sat down and we had, she bought my breakfast. Um, and we sat down and we chatted for like two hours, all of us together. It was like a fucking Hallmark movie. And we had a wonderful time. <laughs> it was great. Like, she's delightful. She's going to be in the kids' lives. And I think, you know, she seems, from what I can tell, like she's going to be a really positive influence. She's warm and loving and feels grateful to be involved. And, um, you know, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good so far. A beautiful ending, though a bittersweet one. Walked away delighted. And then I was driving along and I was like, I feel weird. What is this? What is this feeling? And the feeling was a bit of instability because I was like, okay, now well, there's a, there, this person seems wonderful, but it's still a new person. It's going to be in all of our lives. What's it going to be like? What's going to happen in the future? You know, this unpredictability. And the other feeling that came was I feel vulnerable because I am on my own. And while I I've never been as happy in my whole life as I am right now. I've never felt as good as I feel right now. And I'm exactly where I need to be. I wouldn't want to have it any other way. When you are single, actually, I don't call my my relationship status is not single. Someone asked what it was the other day. I said independent. Um, While I am independent, you and and I, I have such an amazing support network, but you don't have that one that's got your back. And it's like stepping out into the cold without your jacket every time because you know that you hold you up when you're going through a tough time or when you're sick and you still have to parent the kids, it's on you. You don't have that one solid support that's right there. It's interesting because I'm just imagining all the people listening who are in relationships who still feel like they're going out without a jacket. Oh, 100%. I know exactly what that's like. Mm. Because, you know, when you get let down... And you don't feel that you can trust that person to be there. Or, you know, or you're lonely. Or you don't have physical or emotional intimacy. Or you don't feel heard and understood and seen. And your experience is not acknowledged. Or it's dismissed. Yeah, you are going into the cold without a jacket constantly. If this resonates with you, this feeling of going out into the world without a jacket, even though you're in a relationship, Hannah's last piece of advice is for you. I just would say, like, listen to your body, just go into your body and your body will tell you. Yeah. And also get therapy before you need it. (laughs) Yeah, get therapy now. (laughs) Get therapy now. It's already too late, but get it now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The relationship is the fire between you and you have to both sit on either side and be throwing logs on. Same size, same quality. <laughs> but you both have to be throwing logs on the fire because otherwise it can't work, especially not long term. Endings aren't always happily ever after. Actually, when are they ever? Most of the time, endings suck. At least when you're going through them. Maybe whatever it is that's over was something you don't want to give up and you're not ready yet. Or maybe you know that it's time to call it. That doesn't make doing it any less painful. Sometimes, like with Hannah and her ex, endings that suck are also beautiful. 
and they lead to growth and adventure and excitement that you never thought possible for yourself. Because actually when you think about it, every ending is the beginning of something else or an opportunity to try a different approach. It's normal to grieve what you've lost, to ugly cry and spin out and feel like a huge fuck up. But eventually, once you've done some processing and recovered your grace and self-compassion, I hope you can face whichever of life's endings you're dealing with, as Emily Nagoski said, with playful confidence and joy. And speaking of endings that aren't endings, it's time to say goodbye. But not forever. Our plan is to come back to you with another season of The Good Sex Project, where we take this journey of understanding what good sex and good relationships look and feel like even further. So this isn't really goodbye, it's see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Sex Project, made with the support of New Zealand On Air. We are on a mission to get this information out to as many people as possible, and you're a big part of that. If you can subscribe, rate and review us on podcast platforms, that's amazing. But also tell your friends, tell strangers, send it to that one person who you think needs to hear the information. Everybody deserves a good shot at a healthy and happy sex and love life. If you want to get in touch with me or the team, send us a message on Instagram at goodsexproject or email goodsexproject at gmail.com. I love these messages, so please get in touch, especially if you have a story of your own to share. To every person who shared their story with us, thank you so much. No matter what it was that you came here to talk about, you will have helped someone who was struggling with the same thing and who thought they were the only one. So thank you for making them feel less lonely and more seen. We appreciate every moment of vulnerability and bravery and every single laugh. On that note, wonderful people, please take us out. You want me to do it? No, don't do it. I don't think you should. (laughs) (laughs) Four times a week plus twice on the weekends that you're doing doing quite well there. (laughs) Not that there's a normal. I mean, listen, it was a volatile time in my life. Yeah, we've heard much worse than wanking. <laughs> Jeez, Lois. Oi, oi, oi. Did you just come? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Have you seen pictures of that one? No, I want to see it drawing. I, I, I scarfed out the room real quick. I'll just make a, a shape for your dick to go into. <laughs> you doing all right with it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this whole thing is TMI, though, right? <laughs> oh, my God. And she's just like, oh. Well, I'm going to get out of here without anything. Like that, being necessary. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm You're like, glad. God, is she going to leave? Do I have to, <laughs> to, what get I have to do? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so inappropriate. But I am. That's how we're going to finish. You're having trouble finishing. Maybe we don't need to finish. <laughs> <laughs> the Good Sex Project was written and developed by me, Melody Thomas. Our producer and audio editor is Kirsten Johnstone from Popsock Media. Thank you to Adam Dudding at Stuff for invaluable script advising. Production support comes from Elena Bates, with additional support from Janhavi Gosavi. Phil Brownlee recorded me in the studio, and our sound mix is by Mark Chesterman. The beautiful soundtrack music is by Paddy Fred, with additional music by the Wellington band Womb. Find both of them on Bandcamp. 
and illustrations for the Good Sex Project are by the incredibly talented Francesca Melis. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In the human race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The human race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate.